Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. Let's start with a case from Michigan, Millman v. Figer and Figer, which is a lawsuit brought by a lawyer against a law firm. Some people may find this amusing, and I guess that's fair, so laugh it up. In this case, a Michigan lawyer was fired in March of 2020, the same day she made a request for unpaid leave to care for her two-year-old son, who had a history of respiratory illnesses and was exhibiting symptoms associated with COVID-19. Now, during the prior weekend, the lawyer had emailed a partner at the firm to discuss her concerns about COVID-19 exposure and requested to work from home the following Monday and Tuesday. In her first email, she noted her worry about her children's daycare facility being closed due to COVID, and in the second, she stated additional concerns about her son's heightened vulnerability to contracting COVID as a result of a prior condition. The partner advised her that he could not approve work-from-home requests and suggested she make the request directly to the owner of the firm. He also advised her that if she could not work from home, she could take PTO on those two days. The lawyer called the owner early on Monday morning to request a remote working arrangement, and he denied her request. She then contacted HR to request PTO for those two days, and that was approved. The lawyer's son's condition did not improve, and she remained concerned about working in person in the office if he had contracted COVID. She contacted HR, stating that her son's symptoms were not any better and that she had major concerns about working in the office because of his condition. She offered to take unpaid leave if necessary to stay out of the office. Human Resources responded without addressing her request for unpaid leave and instead offered that she could work from home for the remainder of the week. She accepted that offer, forwarded the HR email to the supervisor, and worked with him as usual throughout the workday, but remotely. By the end of the day, however, Human Resources emailed the lawyer a letter signed by the owner that terminated her employment with the firm. The letter stated, you failed to come into work on Monday and Tuesday and indicated that you were taking personal time off. You assured your supervisor that you were going to come in on Thursday. Today, Thursday, you did not come into work and indicated that your child had a minor cold. Today will be your last day on the payroll. Now, the case was initially dismissed, but that was overturned by the Sixth Circuit, and the case is going forward. The key point from the court is that the FMLA's language requires employees to put their employers on notice of their desire to use their unpaid leave by making a formal request to the employer. And that is the first step in the process contemplated by the statute. The court noted that the steps of the process created by the FMLA, including the first step, that is, the employee's initial request for leave, must be protected activity under the Act. This is true whether or not the employee is ultimately entitled to any leave under the Act. Now, this case is a good reminder for employers that the FMLA protects employees from retaliation for requesting leave, period. This doesn't necessarily mean that the lawyer will win her case, but once an employee makes the request for FMLA leave, the employer needs to go through its process for handling such requests. This would have been a different case if the employer had sent the employee FMLA paperwork and completed the process for certifying or denying the request as required by the Act. In many cases, this seems pointless, but that is what the FMLA requires and cutting corners is risky.
Next, I want to briefly touch on a failure to accommodate case, Perkins v. City of New York. The case has a complicated procedural history that we need not get into. The interesting part is the fact pattern. The employee, who is deaf, worked in human resources. She had requested as an accommodation a monitor or computer with a video camera to be used as a video phone device for her phone calls and access to a video remote interpreting device through her phone or tablet for field visits. Two months after her request, the city provided a video phone, but it was not usable because of firewall issues. After she made additional complaints, the city provided working equipment, but it stopped working again after about a month. New equipment was installed after another month, but the issues with functionality continued. She later filed suit, and in allowing her claim to go forward, the court noted that an ineffective accommodation does not satisfy the requirements of the act. Now, this is an odd case because the employer approved her requested accommodation and tried to provide it. The problem was in the execution, which failed. The takeaway for employers is that it's not enough just to approve an accommodation and walk away. The accommodation has to actually work or the possibility of liability remains out there. I've actually seen these types of cases in practice several times. Unfortunately, they usually end in some kind of internal finger-pointing about whose fault it was that the accommodation was not actually working, and that is never a good look in litigation. Next, let's look at an employee handbook case out of Alabama, Davis v. City of Montevallo. Employee handbooks remain very popular and are a rich source of litigation. Seriously, if you have a handbook that you borrowed from someone else or wrote yourself without consulting an employment attorney, you are dancing in a minefield. In the recent Alabama case, the handbook had a nice at-will disclaimer, but that wasn't the issue. The handbook also had a detailed step-by-step discharge procedure that the employer stated it would follow before terminating an employee. The discharge procedure included written notice, a determination hearing in which the employee and a representative could participate, final review of the decision by the mayor of the employer city, and employee appeal rights. The employee in this case was discharged, but the elaborate procedure was not followed. In siding with the employee, the court noted the handbook's pervasive use of the word shall when describing the discharge process and concluded that it meant that the discharge procedure was intended to be binding on the employer. Game over, as they say. When I review handbooks for employers, one of the first things I do is go through the handbook and change all those shalls to mays. Instead of the employer shall do this, I typically revise it to the employer may do this. In this case, I probably would have removed the procedure in its entirety or possibly changed it significantly, but this would have been an issue that most any experienced employment lawyer would have caught if they had reviewed the handbook. Now let's consider pregnancy discrimination. Hopefully, you are already aware that more than half of states have laws on the books that require employers accommodate employees with conditions arising from pregnancy or childbirth. This has not been required by federal law, although the ADA often comes into play. However, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was just passed by Congress and is expected to take effect on June 27, 2023. It will require employers with 15 or more employees to provide temporary and reasonable accommodations to employees for conditions related to pregnancy or childbirth. The provisions of the Act, which are similar to the ADA, 
require only those accommodations that are reasonable, do not impact the essential functions of an employee's job, and do not pose an undue hardship on the employer. Furthermore, both laws require employees to engage in the interactive process. The EEOC is expected to issue guidance with illustrations of the reasonable accommodations that can be provided to individuals covered by the Act. Employers should watch for these regulations and be prepared to comply with the PWFA later this year. Finally, let's finish with a dress code case, Kinzer v. Whole Foods Market, Inc. In this case, the employer's dress code prohibited employees from wearing clothing with any visible slogan, message, logo, or advertising unless it was branded with the company's logo or that of other company affiliates. The dress code was infrequently enforced until the summer of 2020 when the company started cracking down on dress code violations. Beginning in April 2020, the employer required all employees to wear a face mask due to COVID-19. Employees were expected to wear face masks that complied with the dress code. It was undisputed that in the summer of 2020, there was an increase in enforcement of the dress code. Three employees were terminated for repeatedly wearing Black Lives Matter face masks in violation of the dress code. They filed a lawsuit, and who do you think won? Go ahead, write down your guess. I'll wait. Ready? Okay. This one went the employer's way. The dress code was enforced uniformly across the board. The employer claimed that the motivation for the change was an increase in dress code violations by retail workers in its store between April and June of 2020. Beginning in June 2020, store leadership company-wide was directed to handle violations of the dress code with a consistent progressive discipline policies that gave employees an opportunity to comply or be sent home, which would result in an attendance violation. Where the policy violations persisted, the usual progressive discipline process was to be followed. Now, an important factor in this case was that even after substantial discovery, the employees could not identify any similarly situated employees who violated the dress code in a similar manner and were treated differently. The evidence showed only that the employer did not strenuously enforce the dress code policy until mid-2020. When it increased enforcement, it did so uniformly. The takeaway for employers is that you can enforce policies, including generally unpopular ones like dress codes, but you have to do it uniformly. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.